Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I am joined today by my co-host, co-founder... Ben Sternke. Hello, I'm here. And uh, guest from last time, uh, she was so helpful and uh, illuminating and erudite that we decided, oh, thank you, ben. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to have her back. Becky Dunn is with us again. Hi, everybody. And today on the podcast, we have our very good friend, uh, and uh, he used to be a bachelor, but no longer. He was a really, he was the, one of the most eligible bachelors I knew. Uh, his name is Adam Gustine. <laughs> But he's been a married man for a long time now. Right, Adam? Yeah, as long as you've known me and longer, actually. I just heard stories about you before. From before. Point of order, yes. <laughs> uh, no, uh, my good friend Adam Gustine is going to join us today. We're going to talk about uh, working in, uh, in the church for justice, uh, and particularly uh, working in the church and how it relates to our leadership uh, for uh, racial reconciliation and socioeconomic issues and community development, etc. So Adam, you're joining us today because this is a passion of your heart. Uh, you're in the process of writing a book about this and you're leading out in a context uh, with, a, with a denomination for that. So can you give us a brief introduction of just where you are and who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be on today. Um, I work for the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, we have uh, a lot of different priorities, but one of them is uh, in the area of mercy and justice, we call it love, mercy, do justice. And my role is director of ministry initiatives, which basically means that I, I work with congregations at the local level. What does it look like to, as the church in place, uh, embody justice um, along lines of race, but also community development? What does that mean to be the church, particularly uh, among vulnerable or at-risk populations? Great. Great. So, what's your what's your title? Give me your what's your official title? Uh, the director of ministry initiatives for Love Mercy Do Justice. That's a long title, man. It fits on two business cards <laughs> if you put them side by side. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, uh, can you can you so on this podcast we are attempting to give people an imagination for how to live um, in 
the way of Jesus, and we've described the way of Jesus through our missional axioms. God is always present and at work. Uh, God cares about all of it more than we do, and God is so real, he's going to most fully meet us where we really are, etc. Um, I, my, my, we, we have a long conversation today maybe about this, but my question just primarily exists in this realm. You, you come from, you, you know, you're a, a white dude like I am. Uh, we have another white dude, Ben Sternkey. Hey, I just uh, I just outed your race on this podcast. I know, but, yeah. All right, Every, it was a mystery until now. <laughs> Nobody knew. <laughs> uh, Becky, uh, also sort of a minority. Sort of, yes, sort right, of. right. Sort of. She's uh, not a white. white dude. I'm a white woman. Yeah. White woman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have four white people talking about uh, race and justice. Ben, uh, Ben, uh, this was Ben's idea. Uh, Adam. <laughs> Are there any hazards to that that you've discovered in your job? Not a single one. This is the perfect <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> what, what are you learning as someone who cares deeply about uh, racial justice, economic justice, from somebody who's coming from a place of you know privilege uh, in our culture uh, based upon your socioeconomic and your race and your gender, et cetera? Yeah, you're right. We probably could have a, a number of different conversations about this, or it could go in a number of different ways. But I, I think that the the first thing that I would say is that the the number of ways that I am a liability in the work of justice or racial righteousness are are probably too many to count. And and the the primary one, I'm convinced, is that I am blind to almost all of it, all the time. Mm. Um, and so while there is a sense in which I think as a community, a white church community, we need to be having these conversations um, so that we're not always asking leaders of color to help us. Um, that's really important for us to have these kinds of conversations. It, it can become really easy, really quick for it to just become like a, an internal feedback loop where we're actually not seeing the things that we need to see. It can be kind of dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So what do you... What what are some of the things that you're discovering and learning? Uh, you mentioned your your blindness, and you're mentioning uh, this these feedback loops that we get into. But could you bring that down into sort of discrete, concrete artifacts? Like what what does that look like tangibly for you? Yeah, I think um, a lot of them. I I feel like a lot of them are postures um, that then end up manifesting themselves in real concrete ways. Uh, so, for instance, when I when I first encountered um, the issues ar around justice, I think I was in college, and it was when you know Bono was making the African AIDS crisis uh, something that evangelicals started talking about. I think that was like the first time that I really started thinking about justice, and I remember it it created in me this like existential crisis: how could God let something like this happen? And um, and so I. I was continually thinking about it in terms of what I, you know, like to put it a, maybe crassly, like it became an, a question of systematic theology for me. It, uh, injustice was a problem of evil conversation. Okay. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a mentor of mine and I was, you know, sort of like railing on God and my, my lack of faith based on it. And he said, well, you know, God has already given the world uh, in some ways the answer to this problem and, and it is the church it's the people of God and, and we're just not doing uh, what we need to be doing and he you know he just sort of outlined some of the facts related to the ways that the church is disengaged from issues around justice 
Um, and that was really enlightening for me. And it, and as I think about it now, the now 15 years later or whatever, I think about it a lot. Like I see that happen a lot, particularly with white Christians, is that we turn injustice into something that is abstracted outside ourselves, which feels pretty white in general. Like we want to turn it into um, propositional truth or we want to turn it into a systematic theology conversation. That always keeps us, keeps the issue outside of ourselves rather than asking where are we at fault? Where are we um, complicit in the injustice? And we were talking about whiteness and racial injustice and, and systemic issues in the United States. If white Christians are pushing the problem out and abstracting it, then we will never accurately and, and meaningfully be engaged in that because we won't we won't be able to name our own complicity in the problem. Mm. So I think that's one of the main the main things. Um, because then I think the other thing that happens then is when we notice then that injustice, if it lives outside of us, that means I, have, I don't have anything to repent of. Um, but I'm also prone, I think as a white man, uh, I'm also very prone to assume I have the answer for the problem. Um, that uh, rather than being like a monkey wrench injustice, I'm, I'm much more like the Messiah. So like, I, it, it's a very white thing to, it's a very white thing to, to, push a problem that I'm complicit in outside of myself mm. and then assume that I'm the person perfectly positioned to solve the issue. Uh, and so I jump in with both feet to try and like make the difference in the world. Um, yeah. Those two things live in every white body. I'm convinced of it. Yes. And, um, uh, Adam, I know and, exactly what you're talking about, even though I don't struggle with it. And I think I know what to do about it. <laughs> I've, de I've developed a blog. I, I wrote a blog post about it. I abstracted yeah. it into an idea that lives on the internet. And oh, now, man. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I want to live. I mean, I think that we could end the podcast there. Cue the out outro music. Mm. Um, but you, I interrupted you to make a uh, not very funny joke, Adam. What were you saying? No, I think that was, I think that was it. Just that um, to the extent that we believe we're not the problem and the answer to it, um, particularly when it comes to the domestic version of injustice, we're going to, we're going to get in our own way. Um, and we will be liabilities in, in the work, um, yeah. until that becomes centered in the way that we talk yeah. about it. So here's, here's the question that goes through my mind, Adam, I wonder if you could reflect on this with us. Um, I think for a lot of, and I know for me, um, the, the place I live and the, you know, the, the, the make of my church and all that kind of thing, I don't come into contact super regularly with issues of injustice and you know th these kinds of things for me most of most of my interaction with these kinds of issues comes via social media the internet i hear about things right i read a news story i hear a quote i th and i you know and i and i have this you know this uh dilemma i guess because i on the one hand i don't want to just turn a blind eye to these things. I think that's a, you know, that's a, maybe could be looked at as a white thing to do, you know, like, like, well, you know, not in my backyard, so it doesn't affect me. But by the same token, um, I think there's also a, a trap that we can get into where we just think that if I'm, you know, retweeting the right things on social media, that I'm, that I am working for justice as well. Like what, what advice or what reflections do you have on that? Wait, that's uh, a trap? <laughs> it's, it's a trap. Uh, it is a trap, I think, you know? Because, um, again, I, I'm hearing you say, like, one of the tendencies is to abstract this outside 
you know, into an idea. And I think social media does that where it's like, it doesn't cost me much. You know, might, I might lose a few followers if I, tweet, you know, tweet the wrong thing. But what, um, I don't know, like, what, what would you say to somebody who wrestles with that to say, like, you know, I, I, I care about this. I don't interact with it a lot in my normal life, but I, I want to feel like I'm doing something or, you know, how do I, how do I navigate that? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things probably you could say about that. Um, I, I think I'd come to, to two or three things. If I think the first is that um, if, if it's a context where there's not a ton of uh, in-your-face injustice issues or, or maybe there's not the, the diversity level that would, um, that would create the, the constant conversation around racism or discrimination or something like that, um, I think you one, one first step would be to take a longer look at the story of the place. And, and this is where, you know, like a, like a holistic theology of place uh, that gets kind of worked out in community could be really interesting because when you think about, uh, for instance, the, the creation of the suburbs and why they were created and the kinds of um, life situations they were created to protect mm. uh, the people that were, um, that they were designed to keep out. Um, most uh, contexts that would be sort of homogeneous in that sense would have layers of discrimination in their early story. Um, and that uh, suburbs and cities um, have a symbiotic relationship for one de- to one degree or another, and so uh, it's it's difficult to live in in a in a place like Fishers and and it not intersect with the way that it uh, means what it means to live in Indianapolis. Um, mm-hmm. Those are those are connected entities. Um, you know, in, in the in the suburbs here in Chicago, you know, you have a lot of people who live out in the suburbs and work in the city. And so they're economically tied together. Um, and yet, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, the city of Chicago, people that lived in the city made their money in the city and spent their money in the city. And so you have kind of an ecosystem that, that, that served itself. Yeah. You have the creation of the, the suburbs, and then all of a sudden you have an ecosystem that serves an outside community. And who is the community that, that loses in that kind of a situation? So I, I, I'll stop there, but I think the point is that place does matter, and that I think that, the, mm-hmm. that in the story of, of any community, you're going to have the opportunity to discover ways in which um, you're, you're, we're part of a story. Yes. And that doesn't mean that we're necessarily actively um, engaging in unjust practices, but I do think that um, it's uh, prerequisite work. Before we say, "Well, there's no injustice in my community," we probably need to examine that deeply and ask those questions deeply. Yeah. So I hear you saying that um, the first thing is to realize, that, like, racism injustice doesn't live at the individual level. It doesn't just arise out of me having a bad feeling towards somebody who's not like me and then acting on it. It actually happens without me realizing it just by the fact that, you know, I'm part of a system. Yeah. An interrelated system. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that, and that what is, um, the systems are designed to produce the outcomes they produce. And so to the extent that a system preferences a certain community or a certain group of people, it means that it's de-preferencing another community somewhere else, um, that, it's, that there were probably 
uh, doing something at the expense of another. And I think that would be maybe the second thing is that, uh, you know, in my last pastor in Indiana, we were, we were in a fairly homogeneous, white, upwardly mobile community, but we didn't have to look very far to find a school system, for instance, where 90% of the kids were on free and reduced lunch. And these were, this was, this didn't leave our community at all. It was just, there's the school where 90% of the kids hmm. live below the poverty line or live right or at it. So mm -hmm. uh, you, you have opportunity, I think, to discover those kinds of margins mm -hmm. uh, anywhere. They might just, they might not be the ones that um, are being talked about on CNN, but there are margins yeah. uh, in any kind of community. And I think that this is the, the real opportunity for like a, a parish oriented congregation is to sort of intentionally look for where those margins are and to, you know, embody the way of Jesus by putting yourself there. Great. That's great. You were going to mention a couple other things. Do you remember well, I what think they were? that's, that's yeah. the second thing is to start to look for okay. uh, the margins, people who are being othered or, or pushed out and, and, and sort of discerning what it would look like to embody the, the kingdom at yeah. the margin rather than toward the margin. I don't okay. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I think the, I think the a third thing could, could be, uh, how would you phrase that? Learning to, learning to narrate issues of injustice within the discipleship framework of your church uh, in a way that sort of resists uh, the partisan divide. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things is that mm -hmm. when you're in a homogeneous community, you, you might tend to have um, distance from the actual personal aspect of injustice. If you don't have any immigrant families in your church, it might be hard to get people to see what's happening at the border right now as uh, pressing to them and something other than a political topic to debate. Um, and, and so to the extent that we begin those kinds of conversations within the sort of partisan antagonism becomes pretty difficult. But, but, but thinking about justice as an issue of discipleship rather than outreach to me means that, that there is a way that God sees the world mm. and a way that God wants us to see the world. And that sometimes that's going to mean that something is just flat out wrong. Mm. <laughs> and, and it isn't a matter of political debate. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and nuance is actually a way that we sort of stiff arm uh, yeah. what's just true. Good. Mm -hmm. So just to recap, uh, you said, number one, know the story of your place, because there are almost certainly systemic issues as to, like, <laughs> why are we so homogeneous? You know, th that didn't just happen naturally. That was probably engineered somehow. Number two, um, uh, <clears throat> what was number two? Look just, for the margins. Look for the margins, yeah. So they may not look like what you see on the news, but they exist in your community, and you, you've got to get out there and, and, and look at those places because they, they do exist. Find out what they are for your community. And number three, find some way to narrate this into the discipleship framework of your church where this becomes, this becomes not just a, a partisan topic or a, you know, a, an elective for discipleship. Like, oh, yeah, some people care about justice, but this actually becomes endemic to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we think about these things, we know about them, uh, we are involved in them. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Cause I mean, if you think about it, um, uh, many times the justice conversation gets sort of framed in the negative, this is wrong. And there is a, there is definitely a, a layer where that has to be the case. But, uh, the, I think the more you look at just through 
the lens of scripture, it, it's much more generative. It's much more about the shalom of God, God's wholeness, uh, flourishing and thriving of people and communities. And so um, if we were to frame it in, in the sense that, that God designed us to flourish uh, holistically and that the story of God's redemptive and reparative work in the world finishes that way, um, and if it's true then that God cares about that more than I care about that, uh, then it's possible for me uh, to frame questions of justice around who's not experiencing the flourishing of God. Where are the communities in our, in our local community where uh, we're not thriving, where, where shalom is not taking root? And what would it look like then for us to be a part of that work in the world? So it's the same conversation in my mind, but one, one frame from the positive or frame from the sort of generative side. Um, but I think all that um, is work that, that gets at that larger question. I have, a, I have a question, Adam. How do What's a good way to originally spark um, people's interest in this and them even realizing this is an issue? There's so many people sitting in churches that don't, don't, aren't aware of it. They don't see it. So from a larger scale, these are all great ideas. How do you get people who are completely unaware of this living in the suburbs of Indiana or wherever they are that just don't see it, how do you get it to touch their hearts? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, to be honest with you, there are days when I'm tempted to say, if watching the news doesn't touch your heart, then I don't have anything to say to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but... As a pastor, you're not allowed to to say that. At least and it publicly, sometimes so. depends what news station you're watching as well. Right. Yeah, That's yeah, true. absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I, I, to me, it's helpful. I think about uh, Jeremiah 29 a lot. There's a lot of uh, urban ministry justice layers in Jeremiah 29. Uh, but the thing that I, I come back to a lot is that when God God talks about um, calling Israel to seek the, the shalom of, of Babylon while they're there in exile, but that they're going to be there for three generations. Um, but God says something interesting that if Babylon prospers, you will prosper. And we live in a world where it's totally opposite of that. We want to prosper. And we believe that if I prosper, somehow I'll, uh, my prosperity will trickle out to the rest of society. But, but God frames it the other way, that, that, that if the entire community prospers, that's where I find my flourishing in that. Um, hmm. But there's this generational vision. So like when you're, when you're watching TV and they have those uh, financial planning commercials and you've got this, like the old guy that's watching his grandkids like run around on his, his really super nice yacht. And like, <laughs> this is the goal. Um, <laughs> that's the American way, but like God turns it on its head. It is a generational vision, but it's a community wide generational vision. Yeah. And so to me, I think it's, it's gotta, it's gotta intersect there because that impulse to want, your grandkids to be in a better spot than you is, is I think, human and full of virtue. Yeah. Uh, but what we've done is we've sort of twisted it because we've, we've come to view the rest of the world as opponents for a limited set of resources. Yeah. Uh, that everybody else gets in the way of the possibility of my grandkids flourishing. But I think if Jeremiah 29 is anything to say to us, it says that that's actually really backwards. Um, 
that there is the possibility of community flourishing and that my grandkids will flourish if the community does. So I think about this a lot, like when my kids were first starting to play baseball and I watched um, some of the other coaches like lose their minds on five-year-olds playing t-ball. Don't believe it. It doesn't um, happen. It really, it, that never happens down there. <laughs> no, you no. sports, the, the people don't lose their minds ever, right? No. Right, exactly. Yeah. I spent uh, I spent that whole first season just being afraid that the next year they'd get one of these like psycho coaches. So I decided to sign up to coach them only because <laughs> I didn't want my kids to have like their lives ruined by a maniac. Yeah. yeah. And so I signed up to coach. And um, so like I came at it with this idea that like the world out there is the thing that's threatening my kids flourishing. And so I did this a very self-protective move. But we were in this in this little league where like all the kids on my team, almost all the kids on my team were living in total chaos. Um, their lives were very different than our lives. And so they would have been kids who experienced a lot of those margins that I was talking about. And it was, it was like this really regular thing that if I, I had to learn how to see that, that God wants for all these kids, what I want for my kids and even more. Um, and that if I, um, that if I sort of, worked for the good of my kids at the expense of the rest of these team, the, these kids on the team, that they would, they would suffer because of that. But if, if I, if my goal was to see all these kids uh, have a great summer and learn and find their gifts and, you know, learn all these things, then my boys would, would have that if experience as well. Um, when I think about that, that to me is, is where I start to in these, in these places, because everyone in the church, resonates with this idea of wanting to see their kids and their grandkids flourish. And to me, it's just, it's just connecting the dots of saying we, what, what God wants for all kids, we want to want for all kids too. Yeah. And that's a really easy way to get into all of this. Um, and, and you can start talking about all kinds of things um, a, a, as an extension of that. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, what something that's really important. I want to highlight what you said it's occurring to me as you talk about this school that, like you mentioned earlier, you worked at a church and the school had uh, kids on like government lunches, and then you have this little league and there's kids around your kids that your impulse is to protect your kids, but then you find that their flourish is, flourishing is bound up with these other kids flourishing. I, one of the things that I hear you, uh, one of the things I'm inferring from what you're saying is that there's there really is no way to transcend this blindness or this mm-hmm. ignorance without actually your story connecting with other people's stories mm-hmm. like uh the, the relational the relational uh importance you know of just of, of intersecting with somebody else who sees the world differently who is uh coming from a different place that you are and having to reckon with that either through the fact of like you're living on top of me next to me or uh, i have to be with you every day and be your coach yeah i think that's exactly I think that's exactly it. And I don't think it's a, um, it's not like a curricular pursuit where we uh, turn in the final paper and then have arrived so that we ever move past the need for those kinds of voices and influences in our lives. Um, and I think that that, you know, in one way is a great gift that I've had, certainly the most challenging part of the last 15 years of my life. But the greatest gift is that in every place that I've been, I've been in significant relationships with leaders of color, uh, women, people who have challenged me to see outside of sort of my narrow, privileged, preferenced uh, story, 
Um, that's not something that I ever am able to feel comfortable enough to move on. I haven't had enough voices in me, and that'll just never be the case. And I think it's because I live in a world that constantly wants to preference me, um, and that I, I, I am very willing uh, to allow that to happen unless I have people helping me see not only the injustice, but the possibility of real justice, real shalom by, by figuring out what it looks like to resist that. Um, I think that one of the dangers is that uh, when, you, when, you, when you look at like the academic work on white fragility, for instance, uh, one of the things that they talk about um, with white fragility is that actually w one of the more dangerous forms of white fragility is progressive white fragility uh, <laughs> because as you get awoken to racial justice um, the white fragility tends to insulate you from feeling like you have any further to go uh, and I would say that that as I live in the you know the justice world that is tends to be a little more progressive I, I certainly experience that in my own life uh, and see it everywhere that uh, you know white uh, white folks who are woke might might be um, uh, a greater liability than people who just have never never been uh, rustled out of their sleep. Right. So, and because you're saying they they might live under the illusion that I've I've arrived, right? I've yeah, arrived so, at wokeness, and so now, what else is there to do? Mm -hmm. Exactly, because I don't think that uh, being awakened to uh, injustice does anything to uh, mitigate that problem from the beginning that I talked about, like the abstraction and the messianic complex. Like you, I, I think we still all are going to walk through the world with that. So if I wake up to racial justice, assume I'm not part of the problem and assume I'm part of the answer. It's the same moment, right. but I don't have any other voices in my life. That's, that's challenging me and helping me see what I don't see. Then that, that can become, there can be a lot of collateral damage there. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Adam, that's powerful, man, and really helpful for me personally. Uh, can we talk leadership for a second? So you mentioned uh, this sort of knee-jerk sort of uh, white people problem of of abstracting the issue and then con uh, assuming that they're the savior or they have the way to fix it. So how do we then inhabit these spaces? So for instance, just take this baseball team. Uh, I think the more granular we get, the more helpful we get. I think we can generalize from granular, but it's hard to get granular from generalizations. So in this little, this baseball team, like how do you inhabit that space as a leader in a different kind of posture? You mentioned there's, there's a posture shift that has to happen. How do you inhabit that without centering your whiteness, centering your privilege, being a savior, having it be charity, uh, you know, making justice sort of this service project? Like, wh what's tangibly different about Adam as the baseball coach now than it would have been 15 years ago? Yeah, I mean, this is probably where we will uh, find our way into the spot where four white folks talking about <laughs> injustice could get us in trouble. But I, I will say this is, I'll just talk about it, I guess, from my perspective and and beg the grace of those who might see better than me. But I think to use that baseball team as, as the right opening metaphor, I mean, I, I think it, it comes by being uh, deciding that you're going to change the priorities, deciding that you're going to change the goals and the values structurally, uh, and then be willing to take any sort of heat that you might get from that. So, for instance, on this baseball team, we had a lot of kids who'd, who'd never played before, didn't know what 
didn't know what hand the glove went on and had never made contact with the ball in their life. And um, we're doing this because, you know, in some ways it was, it was free babysitting or something like that. And so um, in, in a world that is little league baseball, where everybody wants to win the trophy, uh, you have to be willing to say, we are not about winning the trophy. Uh, that success as defined by the entire league is no longer success for us. That success for us comes when Alyssa makes contact with the ball for the first time in the last game of the season. Um, and that that's the thing that we're going to celebrate because we are all in this together. Hmm. And it's pretty easy to say, well, we're about player development, but also it's more fun when we win. Uh, but see, I think that takes the bait. I think that assumes the premise of the question, I guess, uh, in, in society. We have to sort of, I had to that summer be resolute in saying, nope, I don't care if we win or lose. My reaction to winning or losing is the same every time, no matter what, because all of these kids need something much different from me. Now, in, in re-narrating those goals, that meant that I had to deal with all the parents who didn't necessarily think the way that I thought about this. Um, and that uh, certainly we can have fun when we win, but losing doesn't have to not be fun. And we're, you know, sort of helping the parents see what maybe we didn't all see together. Now, this is something that I, you know, this is not, I hadn't arrived at this, but I think that that's a big piece of it. So then when I think about leadership in the church and I think about these kinds of issues, um, I think we have to be willing to say, well, we've got to re-narrate the values and things that we're shooting for. So if the number one goal of your church is to be self-sustaining financially, and you say you want to be about justice and people at the margins, well, those goals are in conflict with each other because you can't be discernibly about the most vulnerable folks and have a financially self-sustaining church. Those things will always be in conflict with each other. Hmm. Um in the traditional way, right? To say that out of our tithing members, we want to be self-sustaining. All, all we will do is, is uh, continue to push the poorest folks in our community out to the margins. So as a church, then we've got to be willing to say, well, our sustainability is going to come in other ways um, because we want to be in a place where we can genuinely honor what people from the margins have to bring to our community. Uh, rather than just sort of try and have it both ways. Mm -hmm. So as an example, I think that's one of the ways that, that gets at it. Wow. That's a lot to think about. Yeah, it is. It's really good. It's I'm thinking very, about it right now. Can't you very hear? Very different than most church cultures that I'm familiar with. Yeah. It was almost like a like the self-sufficiency the self-sufficiency thing feels virtuous, feels good, feels right. But you know, that's just another interesting, I guess, area of blindness. That's because you're white, Ben. I know. It feels virtuous, and, and that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm realizing is like, okay, we've got to get creative about that. And even thought even, about that before. Even, even winning, even doing things primarily based upon sort of economics, you know, being in the black or being in the red, uh, and self-sufficiency as a indicator of self-value or self-worth, or even the right. veracity or... Uh, uh, success of right. what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. How do I know we're doing well? Well, tithes and offerings are up. You know, we're, we're, we win we're the game. Our yeah. team has a winning record. Yeah. That's how we know we're yeah. doing well. Yeah. yeah. And so I was going to ask the corollary question, Adam, like what do you lose on that baseball team if you don't shift the value? So if you keep the value of wins and losses dictating the success of the season, what do you not gain in that space? Well, I think... What ends up happening then is that I'm a really nice coach that all the players like, 
but structurally, uh, the best players get the best spots. And by best, I mean the ones who already know, the ones who already know how to play the game the way the game is played. Uh, they're the ones that get the best spots. And so, um, you know, my sons, the ones that are very close to me, uh, we have the bag with all the catcher's gear in our trunk all the time. And so that means they get to practice with me all the time and I get to see them. And I, of course, preference them because I know them. And so they hit third and fourth in the lineup and they get to play whatever position they want. And, you know, little Alyssa uh, gets in when she can get in. Right. And I may be equally nice to everyone. Um, but if it's about winning, then I will position people in the spots where where we will still win, mm -hmm. which means that nothing about the structure has changed and that her contributions are discernibly valued less yeah. than, say, my son's. And, and we may all smile at the picture, right? And I may be able to put my arm around all the kids and all the parents may see it, but structurally nothing has changed. And I, I really think that that's a big piece of uh, life in the church as well, unless we are willing to actually say we are going to redefine what it means to be in a successful church, um, then we will, you know, we'll be in a stadium full of multicolored people holding hands and singing songs and then walk out and nothing structurally has changed. We may have the reputation of being nice, but we haven't addressed the issue of structures or power or access or, you know, seat at the table. None of those things actually change unless we start redefining our values and our goals. Yeah. Yeah. So can you name, I, go ahead, Becky, you have something? Oh, I was just going to say, practically speaking, how receptive are churches to hearing this? <laughs> Adam? What's been your experience, Adam? What's the question? I didn't hear it. Practically speaking, how receptive are churches to hearing this? <laughs> um, well, I'll let you know in about eight months. No, I think that... Um, <laughs> So uh, the reality is not receptive in, in, the, in the main um, because uh, the status quo is the status quo for, the re for a reason. Um, and, and, and the people who stand to lose uh, when you disrupt the status quo are the ones who have been winning. Um, and so, and so it, it, takes, it takes a leadership and discipleship culture that's willing to lose, willing to divest. Um, in, in order to see the, the whole win. And we just, I'll say as humans, um, are not uh, predisposed to making that choice. All right? The self-interested choice is the one we should make, and so it's very difficult to do that. This is a really interesting story, actually, where I work now, the story of how this came to be. Uh, this office some 20 years ago had a different name, but it was the very first time that an office – dedicated to compassion and mercy and justice ministry had, had existed in, in our denomination. And um, the, the guy who had been leading it, uh, his name was Jim, was a, a white guy, had been leading these kinds of ministries before and was sort of put in place as the first, you know, executive in charge of this area. He literally pulled in his, um, he literally pulled in his number two as an African-American man, and they switched jobs. And he became his vice president and put the African-American man uh, in, in terms of uh, being the executive over this. It's that kind of like, I'm willing to lose uh, in order that we all can, can find the, the greater uh, 
the greater sense of God's justice in this, that is extraordinarily rare, right? Like I just told a story from 20 years ago, because it's, <laughs> it's extraordinarily rare to see that kind of um, power and structural change happen. But it's not just, that's just not a, a racial thing too. I mean, it, it, we want to say that we want to value and affirm women uh, in ministry. That same choice has to be made, right? And that same choice has to be made. We can't just change a title. We have got to change the power structure uh, in order to see and celebrate everyone that's part of our communities. Mm-hmm. That's really good. I want to have a, another follow-up podcast. Adam, are you willing to come back? Sure. Yeah, we'll get started on time this yeah. time, I promise. All right. Sounds but, good. I think there's a, there's a sense in which this is why I, I want to talk about power less from a hierarchy uh, less from um, sort of who's on top and then who's on top gets to dictate things, and now we just need a new person on top, right? Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to see how being on top of the social hierarchy has done awful work, not just for minorities and marginalized people, but for me. <laughs> like, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I, it's, and it's hard for the person on top to say, hey, you don't want to come up here to the people who aren't on the top. I mean, that's like... You know, of course you'll. You know, of course you don't want to divest of that. But I'd love to have a conversation about how do we reimagine power, so that yeah. there doesn't have to be an oppressed and a marginalized person. And and what yeah. does Jesus have to say about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. I think that's really great, and it's, it's a long conversation, like you say. But the the one thing that I'll say at this point is that um, I think you're absolutely right that structures that oppress uh, create. Uh, pain and brokenness, not only in the impressed person, but in the oppressor themselves. And so just mm. flipping the table uh, to to put a different person or a different group of people in that position of power, that p- currently existing position of power, doesn't do anything right. for anybody. The The struggle, of course, is that um, is that there's a way to talk about power from the position of power that says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to create a flat leadership system. Right. But that doesn't actually address the inherent power and privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. So I can say to a room that might be lots of different ethnic groups and both genders represented, I could say to the room, hey, we're all we're all equals here, but we don't live in a world where that's at all true. No. No. So we actually have to make proactive decisions to make sure that that happens. We can't just flatten it because if we just flatten it, the white man is still going to be in the position of de facto power. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's sort of ignoring what I bring with me to the room. So I'm with you. I don't think it's just a matter of flipping it, but I do think that there's, yeah. that there's a lot that has to go into what that looks like. Well, yeah. it's hard. I mean, you can't, you can't do that in that kind of situation because you've had all these people that have had advantages that half the people in the room haven't, whether you are um, a different, you're, whether you're not a white or not a male. Um, so it's in some ways I feel like there's this generation of people that are going to kind of miss out because I believe we should promote people who are in minorities, whether that is somebody of a different color than me or a different, um, whether it's a woman. Mm -hmm. However, you also have the issue then of they're not as qualified. I hear that Mm -hmm. a lot. They're not as qualified. Yeah, right. Which I understand that argument. We're all over the place. Women are getting hired or or people of a who aren't just aren't white men are getting hired just because they're simply not white men. Mm. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it makes me feel like 
it's unfair to both people then as well yeah. that you're doing this. Yeah. Um, and almost like we're not going to see the this come about in a holistic way until a younger generation rises and everyone actually is just more equal and is trained more mm. equal. They're mentored more equal. They're, yeah. they're treated more equal. I mean, I know that as a woman, I've not had the same experiences a lot of men have had in leadership right. roles um, and that not being mentored in that way. Right. You know, when yeah, you're yeah. not allowed to sit and have coffee alone with a man because... Right. You know, you might accidentally end up in a hotel room or something. <laughs> Whoops. You, right. It, it puts you at a disadvantage. And that's, right. a, you know, it's the same yeah. way all across the board if you're not a white male. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know how that. Yeah. I'll shake it, yeah. I guess. That's why I'd love to have another podcast where we talk maybe a little bit more specifically about some of those, uh, some of those issues. Um, because I think I, I hear resonances of what you're talking about with, you know, you're talking about, you know, the baseball team, Adam, mm-hmm. where, you know, there has to be a, an adjustment of like hiring the most qualified candidate has to has to be uh, one of many factors. Right. Yeah. Rather than, well, that's the Trump factor for everything. Like we don't, you know, right. it's like Alyssa never gets a chance to hit mm-hmm. then. You know, yes. because she's not good enough already, mm-hmm. you know. And why aren't they right. the most qualified candidate? Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think, I think the that there's a lot that goes into that, like who has determined what qualified means. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and some of it may, too, get back to that question of story. Uh, when I think about um, my life, I could write a version of my life that, that uh, would look like everything that I've done and every job I've had, I got on my own inherent right. merit and value. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but I think if I'm being honest, there, of course, never been a spot or something that I've achieved or a job that I've gotten where it wasn't because I've had opportunity or a network of support right. or someone actually giving me a leg up. Right. So there is no such thing as a self-made man. Uh, mm-hmm. And I certainly am not one of them. And so if that's the case, then all of these opportunities have put me in this position. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think uh, white men in particular need to own that right. um, and stop uh, stop sort of telling the story that we got where we got on our own yeah. um, and then start to ask questions about whether or not people have access to those opportunities yes. in the same way that I do. Yeah. I think it's a big, big, piece it's a big of deal. It. Yeah. The structural systemic stuff. So. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called I'm still here. Um, oh yeah. And it's Austin. Do you, I can't remember. Austin Channing Brown. Austin Channing Brown. Yes. And I just got to this part where she's talking about how, her parents purposefully named her Austin because they knew that when she went into a job interview, people that were interviewing her would assume that she was a white man. And so there she's gone into countless interviews. People are surprised that she is a black woman. So something even just as simple as, as your name makes a difference. And they did that on purpose because they knew it would give her a little bit of an advantage. She get, she get the interview. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to wrap this up. Um, Adam, you're writing a book about all this stuff. It's not out yet. It comes out in January. Is that right? That's correct. January of yeah. 2019. Um, does the mm-hmm. book have a name yet? Yeah, it's uh, called Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. It Very really good. deals with these questions at the congregational level. What does it mean to become a just people? Justice isn't something we do out there. It's the kind of people yes. we become. Yeah. And that that spills out into the world as we do it. Very good. And uh, who who are you publishing with? Who, where can uh, that's with Intervarsity. Okay. So in January, uh, put it in your planners 
folks <laughs> to look up uh, uh, Adam's book. And maybe we'll have you on uh, another time, uh, Adam, to talk about some of these other issues. Yeah, and and we That'd can, be great. We can talk about the book again. Really glad uh, that you could make it uh, to be with us. And um, uh, to everybody else, I guess we'll see you next time. Okay? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It was great. Right. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you found it helpful, please let us know by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question, suggest a topic for future episodes. And join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful throughout the week. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.